And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, November 8th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, bid protests to the GAO rose sharply in 2023, but why? Plus, Health and Human Services launches its promised Health Innovation Network. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department says faster access to its data lets planners make critical decisions before the enemies can. It's one part of DOD's newly released Artificial Intelligence Adoption Strategy. Meanwhile, service branches are focused on hiring AI talent under the Biden administration's recent executive order on AI. For a closer look at these policies, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Air Force Chief Data and AI Officer, Eileen Vidrine. So when we first stood up our organization, we built a cloud-based platform. We call it Vault. It's the first visible, accessible, understandable, linked, and trustworthy tenants of the DOD data strategy. And it was really to empower any airman or guardian in our ecosystem the opportunity to leverage data. And today, we call that our emerging tech platform. And we do that because many of the capabilities we want are today's technologies now. And we don't do that alone. We have to do it with our industry partners. And so we partner with AFWorks, the innovation cell of the department, as well as our colleagues at the AI Accelerator at MIT, as well as other experts across our ecosystem, which I would also say includes our partners in the other military departments, Army and Navy, to really make sure that we're scaling out that capability. So just recently, last quarter, we brought in a small business tool through a CIBR initiative, and we securely got that into our platform together in under 25 days. So that's today's technologies now. And so when we need to use that capability moving forward, if like, do I reinvest? Do I invest more? I have a whole year's worth of data to say, is it the right tool? Is it the right capability? Uh, Do I need to purchase more of it? So I can really make better decisions. The Deputy Secretary of Defense published several years back the Creating Data Advantage Memo, which it's really, it's the department's data. And how do you make it available and accessible to anybody in our ecosystem that needs it, that has a mission? So it's not just our department, but how do we share it at the speed of mission, at the speed of relevancy with our Army colleagues, with our Navy colleagues, joint staff, even our coalition partners. It's really about working as a team. You really hit the nail on the head there in terms of data sharing. I think one of the core functions of a CDO, uh, no matter what agency we're talking about, is that data sharing, removing those data silos across government. Obviously, the defense community is a big community, and we talk about data sharing. In terms of that form across the defense community, all these CDOs, what are you guys doing to improve that data sharing and obviously link up to DOD, which is also very much focused on all things data? When the very first DOD data strategy was written, it was written in collaboration across the military departments. Just this week, DOD published their new data analytics and AI strategy. And now we're working as a community, now that there's a DOD strategy, you'll see the military departments publish their implementation plans, how to actively make that, you know, go from paper to real moving forward. And I think that we do this together every single day. When we look at our platforms, 
we're intentionally looking at how do I make sure it's interoperable now. Periodically, we pull together and we run these DOD data summits where we not just include the mill depths, but we bring in the combatant commands, our coalition partners, et cetera, so that we're thinking not just about what's in the room, but really what's happened. And how I ask my team is I say, who are your data customers? When we first stood up, we stood up an innovation lab out of Andrews Air Force Base. And I would say the first 50 plus use cases, you immediately knew who, what were your top 10 data sets. So how do you make them the highest quality and make them available and actionable to moving forward? So when you start looking at all the data that you have, if you can prioritize it very quickly, if it's important to our department, we found out very quickly that our other colleagues in our ecosystem needed it too. When we look at the data community, the soft skills are as important as the technical skills because I like to say data and AI are team sports. We all have to get along. We're all on the same team. And so it's really about how do we do that interoperability now? And um, it's got to be built in your business process and um, at the speed of mission. It was only a week ago that we saw a pretty impactful executive order come out of the White House on AI. A hundred plus pages covers a ton of details. Eileen, you have the title of Chief Data Officer and Chief AI Officer. This is something that the Air Force has been mindful of for a while. DOD has been mindful of. DOD has been trying to be AI ready by 2025, AI competitive by 2027. So now that we've seen this executive order, you know, what's front of mind for you in terms of implementation? What are those next steps that really need to be done? Well, so for us, I would always say that the first step is responsible use of AI. And in the Department of the Air Force, we actually have a chief responsible AI official. That is Lieutenant Colonel Joe Chapa. I call him my intellectual giant. But it's really about bringing that operational perspective under the umbrella of responsible AI. DOD has published their responsible AI tenants. So, um, and we see some of those questions embedded in this new executive order. There's topics like working with industry to make sure that we have the transparency we need with these algorithms so that it's not just that we use them, but we use them safely, securely, and there's a traceability or an auditability uh, capability. How that gets implemented, I think that it, we're still early in the journey. It's week one in -hmm. terms of getting there. One of the first things that my team did was when we said AI ready by 2025, I'm a data professional, I like my data points, okay? So it's like, how do I measure that? How do I show progress? How do I map that to resources? And so in fiscal year 23, we actually published our first AI roadmap to meet the intent of 2025 and to measure progress. Now, I will be honest, my team yesterday had an offsite of how to update the plan to make sure that we're hitting all the key gates that just came out in the presidential executive order. So I'd like to say we're taking an agile approach, but in measurable outcomes so that right now we have the disadvantage of being in in a CR. So it's like, how does that impact the progress in terms of hitting key milestones and gates so that we can effectively and efficiently measure our progress, identify where we have potential speed bumps, where we need help from our industry partners, because I go back to, we can't do this alone. If we need to 
bring together all of our players in our playbook to make sure that we're hitting that speed of relevancy. I mean, every day is, there's almost a new to-do list. Eileen Vedrine, the Air Force's Chief Data and AI Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, Health and Human Services launches its promised Health Innovation Network. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health has proceeded with its promised network of health innovation sites. Anchoring the network are three regional hubs, also planned at the inception of ARPA-H. Here with what they hope for this network, the director of the agency's Project Accelerator Transition Innovation Office, Craig Gravitz. Mr. Gravitz, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Okay, lots of questions here. These three regional hubs and a network of other institutions connected What are you doing here? You're not just creating a lot of bureaucracy and cost, are you? Absolutely not. So to really understand what we're doing, you have to understand my function at the agency. So I'm the director of transition. I've worked in government R&D for many, many years. And one of the risks is that we create these wonderful technological solutions and they sit on the shelf. So the way that you make sure that these technological solutions actually get to people and help people is by understanding what your transition pathway is. And fundamentally, this network is about creating these transition pathways to take it from the lab to the human. We like to say you're bridging the valley of death with a superstructure. Yeah, for sure. So that's my function in the, in the agency is to really come up with a transition strategy for our programs at scale. So I'm very motivated and influenced by human-centered design And there's this concept that was popularized by the design firm IDEO, and it's all about how innovation happens. Picture a Venn diagram. So there's feasibility. That's the technical innovations themselves. So think about all the things that our program managers will do at ARPA-H. That's technical feasibility. But in order to get things out into the real world, you need to really think about two other pieces. One is desirability. So that's people, the wants and needs of actual human beings your customers are. Think about issues like trust, affordability, understanding, being able to communicate to people what you're doing. That's desirability. And then the other element is viability, markets. You know, we're creating technological um, innovations that are going to have to live somewhere. You know, what do the markets have to say about that? What is the regulatory strategy? How do you make a solution that fits with the current FDA paradigm? How does it get reimbursed through CMS? And so my theory is that you really need to get at the bullseye of those three elements, feasibility, the technology, desirability, the people, and viability, the markets. And these hubs, they roughly correspond to those three things. These hubs are located where? So our viability or our market investor hub, that's located in Boston. Our desirability or our our customer experience hub, that's located in Dallas. And right now, Loosely affiliated with this effort, but not necessarily part of it, will be our stakeholder and operations hub. That'll be located somewhere in the the Washington, D.C. area. That wasn't part of the original competition that we did. Plus, you have a list of several other institutions that are part of the innovation network, you might call it. Yes. That's the most important part of this, and really what I hope your listeners will take out of it, is that... If ARPA-H is really going to solve for all Americans, which is our mission, we'd need to be 
across all of America. And so it's less about the hubs themselves and more about the networks that they create. So for instance, we have our Investor Catalyst Hub in Boston. One of the requirements of the competition was not just, yeah, they have these amazing capabilities in Boston, and they do. It's that they have the ability to reach all across the country into similarly situated institutions in rural areas and urban areas, all across from the, from the East Coast to the West Coast and everything in between. The idea is that markets aren't just in Boston. They're all across the country. And the same thing with our customer experience hub that's based out of Dallas, There are human beings with different wants, needs, desires, hopes, and dreams all across the country. And so it's not just about the site. It's about their reach, the depth and breadth of their network all across the country. And these hubs then consist of several groups that got together and made a bid to ARPA-H to become a hub. Absolutely. And then what's really exciting is that we used other transaction authority to do this. So we have a very flexible strategy where we can bring on additional spokes. If you think about it as a hub and spoke network, with every effort that we do, we have the ability to bring on different types of institutions. And I'll give you a for instance. Right now, through our customer experience network, we're doing a project, Accelerating Clinical Trial Readiness, otherwise known as ACTOR. And really, that's all about making sure that clinical trials are more accessible to people all across the country. We're doing what's called a network activation call right now, where that brings in basically a 360-degree view of all the types of institutions that are involved with clinical trials. And so new spokes, we're recruiting them right now. It would be unreasonable to think that with the original call, we could have thought about every possible permutation of every effort that we do inside ARPA-H. And so with each effort that we do, we'll bring in new spokes so that we're able to be all across the country. We're speaking with Craig Gravitz. He's director of the Accelerator Transition Innovation Office at the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, part of HHS. Well, maybe walk us through the journey map of what happens if somewhere, someone out there develops, you know, the artificial kidney that you can strap on your belt, you know, and do away with dialysis. I mean, I'm making this up, but I know that happens to be one of HHS's off-again, on-again types of uh, endeavors. And it's feasible. Then what? How would this get across that valley of death using this network of networks that you've described? So I can't speak to that technology specifically, but I I will sort of loosely voice track the journey map. So imagine a program manager. So everything at ARPA-H is driven by a program manager, an expert in his or her field. They will take one of these efforts, like the one you described, And they'll be working in their program to unblock the different technical milestones to do that. So with the, you know, an artificial kidney, it could be getting the belt. (laughs) It could be building the kidney, all all of those other things. That individual will be working through that now. In parallel, my team helps figure out all of the other risks to getting it out into the real world. So there are obviously going to be FDA considerations for this. How do you make sure that there's an appropriate regulatory approval path for that to happen? And so we'll be working closely with FDA to you know, understand you know, whether this comports with the things that they require for things to be safe and effective. Uh, we also need to be thinking through how this would be reimbursed with CMS or through other payers. And so what my team does is we help, in parallel to the science, de-risk all of these other things. We also have to think through what the business models will be for this. And so think about one pathway, the CX network. We'll be thinking about Okay, that sounds really great, that that artificial kidney. 
What do actual people think of that? Would that be scary to them? Is that something as we're starting to roll this out? Is there even a market for that? There's things that from a scientific perspective sound amazing, but when you actually get to humans, there are real roadblocks to doing that. They might not trust the solution or candidly, a lot of reasons why products fail are these sort of basic user design things. Like the product itself might work, but it could be uncomfortable. It could be painful. It could be expensive. And so we need to make sure while the science is being developed, we're thinking through all of these other considerations. And so if you think about it, a path in parallel to all of these technical milestones, what my team does, especially through these networks, is we de-risk all of these other elements so that when you get to the finish line, there's not only a market for it in terms of people who enthusiastically want to adopt it, but there's also a business model associated with it, a company that will be able to sell it in the marketplace and be able to provide it at a, at a reasonable price to human beings, not just for the wealthy, but for you know all of us, people like you and me. And this sounds like a lot to orchestrate. And is that basically what your office does in Washington is to make sure all these parts mesh while they're moving towards the eventual commercialization here? Yes. So previously, before coming to RPH, I worked in a research and development at the Defense Department. And so one of the things that DOD research has, especially DARPA, I wasn't at DARPA, but you know, this is true broadly for any R&D that happens at the Defense Department, is that you de-risk that technical milestone and the follow-on funder is some entity inside DOD. The main difference, aside from the mission set, between DARPA and ARPA-H is that we don't have the DOD to be that follow-on funder to create that pull-through. The reason why my office exists is to sort of reverse engineer that pull-through, make sure that there's someone willing to adopt it. So one of my favorite stories about DARPA, if you think back to stealth technology, the program manager who developed that had you know two gentlemen from the Air Force right there, and there's the original test flight. And that moment is what really made the Air Force interested in funding stealth because they saw that it was true. Wow, this technical milestone truly has been unblocked. At ARPA-H, we don't have the same ability to grab two gentlemen who control the purse strings. You know, we have to find some other way to make our version of stealth survive in the wild. So yes, it is a lot to orchestrate to create these networks. However, if we want to actually succeed and build these technologies that actually get used and enthusiastically adopt by, you know, all Americans, we need to make sure that there is that follow-on funder. Anything in the pipeline right now that looks promising? Yeah. So you could go on our website and you can take a look at some of the initial programs that we have launched. We have um, you know, a number of you know, open calls and things that are be in you know, evaluation right now, but you can look at, at all of those things right now. Two of them that come to mind, which are really exciting, is our Nitro program is uh, developed by Dr. Ross Urich. This is what if joints could heal themselves. So think about osteoarthritis and all the problems that that creates for mobility and, and you know, the obesity that comes from not being able to move around and pain. Well, what if you could uh, do something so that instead of having to get a surgery to replace something, you just get a shot? And so if this succeeds, we could use this network to you know, potentially reduce manufacturing costs, or we could do user acceptance testing in terms of like the concept. Is this scary? Is there some way that we can you know, present this in a way that people will understand what it is? So that one's really exciting. And then we have a number of them, but just another one that, that comes to mind is precision surgical interventions launched by Dr. Ilana Hanku. This is all about getting rid of all the cancer in your body when you have cancer instead of you know the current state of the art, which is get rid of what you can see and then just hope it doesn't come back. Her, you know, her concept is what if you can get rid of all of it in one shot? 
Wow. So sounds like some exciting things going on. And now the network has stood up. Next steps are what? So right now we're onboarding a number of spokes. So as I mentioned earlier in the interview, we really need to be solving for all Americans and being everywhere. And so we're just trying to recruit all different types of institutions, both traditional, you know, fund-seeking entities, the, the, you know, the types of folks who respond to calls uh, for proposals, um, but also non-traditional entities like community health centers, hospital systems, other experts. And we're deep into recruiting all of those spokes right now because we recognize this network will only work if we have just a broad range of players, both traditional and non-traditional. Craig Gravitz is director of the Accelerator Transition Innovation Office at the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, part of Health and Human Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, continuous vetting for trust and security clearance. Easier said than done. But first, bid protests to the GAO rose sharply in fiscal 2023. But why? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Contractors brought protests to the Government Accountability Office more than 2,000 times last year, up by more than 20 percent from fiscal 2022. GAO sustained them at more than twice the rate of the year earlier, siding with contractors in about a third of the cases. For what's going on, we turn to the GAO's Managing Associate General Counsel, Kenneth Patton. Mr. Patton, good to have you back. Thank you. Good morning. Nice to be back. And it looks like there's been this, well, there has been a huge increase relative to, you know, the shrinkage of the last couple of years in protest cases. But there's actually one source of why this is up. Tell us what's going on. Sure. As you know, every year GAO reports the number of cases that it receives to Congress. And over the last five or so years, as you've mentioned, we've seen a trend of cases filed going down. This past fiscal year, we had a number of protests from a single procurement, and that is the National Institute of Health CIO SP4. It's one of four competing, one of four or five competing government-wide contracts for services and products in the information technology area. That's correct. The uh, CIO SP4 procurement, as you might imagine, was a very large procurement. Each one of the Potential contract awards comprised a $50 billion ceiling, and NIH intended to award over 200 contracts. And so when you have a very large multiple award procurement, such as the CIO SP4, a number of contractors want to participate because if you don't get in the initial award, you are precluded from receiving any of the task order awards that would be competed underneath that contract. These were filed at the pre-award stage, correct? That is, they didn't like the solicitation, so they took it to GAO. We actually had pre-award and post-award challenges. Back in the early part of the fiscal year, we had a number of contractors that challenged the methodology that the agency intended to use. And then we had a number of contractors who challenged their elimination from the competition. And we needed to resolve them throughout the fiscal year. And that's contributed to the number of cases that we had in total. We didn't resolve all of our cases dealing with CIO SP4 in one big tranche. It was throughout the year. 
Right. So sometimes you don't get to a case in a particular fiscal year, so there's a little bit of spillover. But you don't have much of a backlog either, correct? We don't have much of a backlog. That is correct. We have 100 calendar days to resolve each protest. And so it's 100 days whenever it's filed, whether it's in the prior fiscal year or the current fiscal year. And getting back to CIOSP4 then, of those protests that were filed for it, how many did you find in favor of the contractor and how many did you find in favor of the agency? Well, in total, we sustained over 119 protests. And the agency in that context would need to go back and take another look at its procurement and try to find a way to explain or justify why it made the decisions that it did. In terms of what we didn't find or what we denied, it's a very mixed bag. There were a number of reasons why we resolve cases in certain ways. Some cases were resolved with what we call corrective action, meaning the agency decided to take the procurement back and take a look at it again and make another decision. And so when those cases are resolved through corrective action, they're dismissed rather than denied. We had a number of instances where contractors actually withdrew their protests, meaning that they took a look at the substance of their allegations and the agency's explanation and decided, you know, we probably don't have as strong a case as we thought we did, so we just withdraw the protests. There were some we decided that were untimely, meaning they didn't file within the required time frame under our regulations. GAO has very strict regulatory timing requirements, as you can imagine, because we only have 100 calendar days to resolve a protest. And so if you don't file within those timeframes, GAL is not going to consider your protest and it will be dismissed. So we had a number of cases in a, a wide variety of postures that got resolved differently. So it's a little bit of a challenge to say that we denied or were sustained because there, there's a mixed bag of how the ones that weren't sustained were resolved. We are speaking with Kenneth Patton. He is one of the managing associate general counsels at the Government Accountability Office. So to summarize, there were 2,041 cases closed in fiscal 2023 versus 1655 the year before. How many actually was the total that came in from CIO SP4? I think we had over 300 or so cases that came in from CIO as before, and our total number of cases filed in fiscal year 2023 was 225, and for fiscal year 22, it was 1,658. And so we typically try not to break down by specific procurements what numbers are ascribed to those numbers because they get resolved in a number of different ways. We don't want to give false numbers or imprecise numbers. And so we, we generally stick away from trying to say it's, it was this number of that, that number of this. In the case of, of a sustain, it's easy. We know exactly how many were sustained because we can look at the allegations and sum them up. But in the case of CIOSP, if it hadn't been for that blob of protests, you would have been roughly the same numbers, more or less, level with 22. We anticipate we might have had about a 3% increase over the fiscal year 2022. That's back of the envelope sort of sort of look. It's not something that we are required to include in our annual report, so we don't calculate those numbers. But just looking at the numbers from a high level, that's what we project that we would have seen an increase. 
But outside of that, then the trend has been pretty much down. And so what do you attribute that to, the long-term trend that protests seem to be trending down, you know, aside from that bump from one procurement? Sure. You know, that's a, that's a very good question, and we get that question often. Unfortunately, what we have to tell people is we can't answer a negative. And so we really don't know why people decide not to protest. There are a number of theories about why people are protesting. One theory is that government procurement spending is up. Over the last number of years, the government has spent a lot of money, a lot of it attributed to COVID, some of it attributed to Ukraine spending and other defense priorities. And so when you have an increase in spending, you're spending more on government contracts. And so the one theory is that contractors are getting a piece of the pie. And as a result, they're less likely to protest because they are getting something out of it. Another theory is that the government has seen an increase in the number of multiple award IDIQ contracts, which the CIO SP4 was one of. And once you get one of those contracts, you have a very good chance of receiving one of the task orders. And again, your incentive to protest is slightly reduced because the universe of potential competitors is small. And in that context, I will say that over the last five or six years, while the trend in the number of filings has actually gone down, the trend in the number of task and delivery order protests filed at the Government Accountability Office has been trending up. And that's significant because GAO is the only forum that can hear protests of task and delivery order contracts. And those are the vehicles that are awarded under these multiple award IDIQ contracts. And so we've seen an increase in a trend line, increased filings regarding task and delivery order protests. At the same time, we've seen a decrease or a trend going downward in the number of overall filings. So there could be more at play in these task and delivery order contracts. And some prime contractor or non-task order types of protests also can go to the Court of Federal Claims and not to GAO. So you might be not getting your full load versus the courts. That's absolutely true. That might be the case. I will say the number of filings that have gone over to the court versus the number or percent decline at GAO, there's a delta there. So you couldn't very well say that all the cases that haven't come to GAO have gone over to the court. They just aren't being filed either at GAO or at the court. So again, it's a hard answer to really explain why someone has decided not to file a protest. Is it also possible that the 1102 contracting workforce is getting better over time? Absolutely. It's entirely possible. You know, the contracting workforce may have, may see a number of the issues and problems that are taking place and are making their procurements better. And one of the things that we track in GAO is what we call the effectiveness rate. And that is a measure of the number of sustains and the number of corrective actions that take place when people file a protest at GAO. And as you can see from our annual report, the effectiveness rate for this past fiscal year was 57%. And obviously, a lot of that is attributed to the CIO SB4 procurement. And if you look at the sustain rate over the number of years, it's been fairly consistent. And we would estimate that the sustain rate for fiscal year 23 without CIO SB4 would fall within that range of anywhere between 12 to 14%. So 
that's a measure of the procurement community looking at their issues, looking at the strength of their cases, looking at the potential mistakes and deciding to take it back and take another look at it. Kenneth Patton is Managing Associate General Counsel at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here again. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that annual report on bid protests at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, continuous vetting for trust and security clearance. Easier said than done. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Growing numbers of federal employees are about to come under what's known as continuous vetting. Public databases automatically monitored by security officials to make sure you haven't been criminally charged or incurred big debt or something like that. Those with national security clearance are mostly under continuous vetting already. Now the Office of Personnel Management plans to extend that to feds with so-called non-sensitive public trust positions. How should agencies prepare and how should you prepare? We get insight now from the managing partner of the Tully Rinky Law Firm, Dan Meyer. Dan, good to have you back. Tom, glad to be with you today. Continuous vetting is already in place, as we said at the top, with national security clearance people. What do they exactly mean by non-sensitive public trust? That sounds contrary. That sounds contradictory. So you have to understand continuous evaluation, the vetting process, in a broader context. And this has spread progressively to other areas of federal activity, not even uh, just employment. So with respect to public trust, think of the pyramid of federal access. You have credentialing, that's your badge that gets you in. That's one level of review. Next level up is suitability, whether you are deemed suitable to be a federal worker employed uh, either as a contractor or as an employee or as a service member. And then the top of the pyramid is what most people focus on, whether you are eligible for access to classified information. People forget that you still go through some review at all levels of federal employment. It doesn't have to necessarily involve cleared work. So as they do the vetting process, if there are concerns that trigger even just your suitability, you may end up excluded from federal work in a way that you wouldn't necessarily have anticipated if you uh, were avoiding classified work. Some people to stay in certain types of employment because they know they got a little rickety record and they think, well, if I don't go for a clearance, then I don't have to worry about it. Well, not so anymore. They may catch you in a suitability review. Got it. And so for agencies who will have employees coming under this, it sounds like they're going to have to make some heavy preparations. What do they need to do to get people into whatever system is used here? So actually placing the person in the system is not that difficult for the agency human relations office, if we're talking public trust, or the security office, if we're talking security clearance eligibility. The bigger challenge is getting the workforce prepared to be under this system. And frankly, uh, federal agencies are behind the eight ball here. They've been slow on the training side of this. And you just can't leave this up to computerized training, the PowerPoint slides that people just click on things and ignore it. And the training is automated and it's not very effective. So they haven't gotten the word out to people how they need to understand that the ways they could nod and wink about rules in the past can't be done anymore. So in the past, once you got through your suitability review, people could slack off and not abide by what are called the factors, the suitability factors. 
then they would think, okay, well, I'll just catch up with it the next time I go for a new job. And you may not go for a new job again. You may stay in the same job for a very long time. And so you're in and you don't have to worry about your behavior. Now with continuous vetting, your behavior can come back to you again. And then you're going to have to go through what's called a suitability review, which means you get a, a set of interrogatories and you have to explain your financial records or an encounter with law enforcement. And that doesn't mean that you have to be charged or arrested to have a concern. Somebody could uh, challenge your suitability simply by a police response to your house. I've had clients just put in a world of misery by well-intentioned relatives who called the police when there was a, you know, a fight between two brothers at a Memorial Day picnic. And then the next thing we know, the one brother who's uh, under the suitability vetting rules is, is now got to explain the fact that he threw a punch at his brother uh, at, a, at a barbecue. You didn't have to concern yourself about this 20, 30 years ago, but, but now it is an issue. So the training has lagged, and that's what supervisors and managers have to supervise and manager and manage in the old school way. They actually have to reach out and work with their employees to tell them that, look, every time, 24-7, on the clock, you have no private life. Your actions are reviewable as a federal employee, and people have to internalize that. We're speaking with attorney Dan Meyer. He's managing partner of Tully Rinky. And what is the mechanism to prevent just not only capriciousness, but also inconsistency from agency to agency on what to call people in for, as you say, for these interrogatories? The only thing providing consistency now is the algorithm. I hate to tell you, but artificial intelligence is here and it's already governing our lives. So to the extent that the algorithm is set to look at certain types of debt, for instance, on a credit report, then there's going to be a gleaning of all credit reports that show a certain level of short-term revolving debt. I tell my clients who are non-Intel community that they don't want credit card debt higher than 12000 I used to tell them 20000 but I think the numbers come down. I don't know that that's what the algorithm triggers. I just know that I have more clients over 12000 with financial issues that they're sorting out with security and with HR than I have below 12000 For somebody in the intelligence community, zero. No revolving debt. You have to pay off your credit cards every month or else you're on a track for a collision with security. So part of the challenge there is people need to adjust their behavior so that they meet the specs of an algorithm we don't really know the details of. But the consistency issue is a challenge because once that dragnet occurs and the emails go out to security, security does have an option or HR has an option whether to challenge or whether not to challenge. And there's a lot of discretion baked into the process. And the Supreme Court has taken a pass on reviewing this. So the Article Three judges are really all out of the stadium for this game. So it's really about your relationship with your agency that determines whether you get reviewed or not. So you just have to think every once in a while. Uh, I tell my clients, think about how you look in the agency. Step back 50 feet away from yourself in your head and look back at yourself and think, how do I appear to my security office and my HR office? And if you are a good agency citizen and you're valued and you're constructive and you're chipper and cheery, you'll do fine. But if you're idiosyncratic, the system could start to question you, and you might end up having to defend yourself, the vast majority of which 
in those cases, the employee prevails. That's the other thing to remember is that the number of people who are denied suitability and even denied security clearances is still really small. You just don't want to have to go through that process of defending your employment. Yeah, so how far should the individual employee go in controlling his or her private life if it's not criminal, if it's not something that in the agency's view could subject them to blackmail or to bribery, you know, if they have to pay a debt or this kind of thing, where does it end? And, you know, how far do you need to really think about what you do in your private life? First thing you have to recognize is the old myth that federal employment was somehow more secure than private employment is a myth, okay? What keeps you in a public employment job is the laziness of management. That's what it is. I understood this second and third year I worked for the Defense Inspector General, and I used to review these cases, and I realized very early on that it was the laziness of management, not the actions of the employee, that decided whether somebody in the end was working for the Defense Department or not. Uh, Management is overtaxed, too much going on, they want to leave at 3 o'clock every afternoon, and so they don't do their job properly, and that gives the employee an out. That's an awful thing to count on if you're a public employee. So you need to, in the case of suitability, you need to read the regulations once a year and tailor your actions to those regulations. The problem with that, Tom, is that they've never issued separate regulations for suitability. If you look in the federal code, it gives no guidance whatsoever. So what I tell my clients is whether you're under a security clearance or not, every year you go to a document called SEED4, S-E-A-D-4. If you Google it, SEED4 with the word security, up it comes, you want the 2017 version. And I tell my clients every year, the week of your birthday, don't read it on your birthday, that's kind of dorky, but if the week of your birthday, reread seed form, surprise how many people don't read it at any time in their federal career. That is the code that you have promised to live by. Every suitability factor maps back to one of those guidelines. Every security clearance, security concern maps back to those guidelines. And that's where you start tailoring your life. And I mean, I'll give you an example. I had a client, great client, who was rather successful at gambling. It's legal, right? You can go to National Harbor, you can go up to Foxborough, there's all sorts of places you can go and gamble. And uh, for many years, I had a security clearance, and then one day gets an inquiry from the security office. And what happened? Well, there's an automated process. If you win or lose more than $10,000, $10,001, off goes a message to the Treasury Department's financial crimes database. It's logged in, not as a crime, but as you know, some sort of activity you take note of. If the person has a security clearance, zingo, it goes over to the security officer. Next thing you know, you're explaining, you know, your winnings. And the vast majority of gamblers can explain that, but there's a risk assessment that then takes place. The heartbreaking one is the domestic violence issues. Sure. You know, we've gone out of the way to report domestic violence, which is good because not enough of it was reported in the old days. But now that means something that is really, really minor, shouting through the wall of a condominium can be reported by a neighbor and the next thing you know your federal job is in jeopardy so what i tell clients is take control of your life frankly if you can afford it live in a single detached home in which you control all the factors i don't want my clients renting out to people and having people living in because then you bring their lifestyle into yours and that could lead to all sorts of complications 
Uh, I don't want my clients subletting from somebody else because then your then your landlord's life is you know part of your life if you're actually living in the facility. Take your debt down to as low as possible, and then try to conform things as most of those guidelines. And that way, you don't have to go through the review. If you do have to go through the review, start saving up your shekels because I think you need counsel. I'm a lawyer. I, I'm putting in a business pitch here, I guess. But <laughs> you know, you want to have the resources sure. available so that you're not guessing. Because the worst cases I get. Somebody could have gotten advice very early on at a very low level of resourcing, and everything would have been fine. But they delayed and they waited, and they got a hold of me 18 months later, and then we got a world of mess on our hands. And one more time, the name of that document people should read? Yeah, it's an acronym. Capital S as in Sierra, capital E as in Echo, capital A as in Alpha, capital D as in Delta, and then the number four. And then if you type that into the browser and put in the word security, up comes the 2017 version. That's what you want to read. Okay. We'll take a look. Maybe there's a pocket version. Attorney Dan Meyer is managing partner of Tully Rinky. Thanks so much for joining me. Okay, Tom. Have a good day. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive continuously. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Job satisfaction across the federal government appears headed in the right direction. No huge jumps, but figures the Office of Personnel Management released this week show slight upticks in measures of how employees view their workplaces, their sense of mission, and other indicators of a healthy work culture. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Drew Friedman have been covering the latest Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey figures, FEVs, and they join me now. And I guess let's start with a review of the numbers themselves. Yeah, Tom, I think the main thing that jumps out at you is, as you said, none of these jumps are enormous. We're talking one or two percentage point uh, increases on each of these key indicators. But I think the thing that strikes me is they're really across the board. On all of the numbers that OPM tracks that really matter, you do see these increases. There's really no area in which um, the government is losing direction, when you, at least when you look government-wide. So, for example, you, you see figures like 68% of people now saying that they're satisfied with their jobs, which is up two percentage points from, 2000, uh, 20, from 2022. And then the big kahuna that OPM kind of touts all the time and, and really the biggest composite score that they look to each year. In 2023, that's at 72%, up just one up one percentage point from the year before. And then several of the components that make up that composite score also went up this year. Um, the, the, the key ones that OPM points to are what they call leaders lead. That's sort of employees' perceptions of the quality of their leadership and intrinsic work experience. That, that gets back to that first number that I mentioned, that 68% of people saying that they are you know, overall satisfied with their jobs. Andrew, do you think that the fact that several hundred thousand federal employees finally settled union contracts in the past year, could that be part of it? It's possible. I mean, there have been a lot of things that have changed over the past year that could be attributed to this change in score. For example, one of the big changes we saw this year was the OMB memo back in April uh, that announced return to office or changes to telework for federal employees. That's something where I'm not sure how much that feeds into the FEBS results this year, just because the FEBS was surveyed out in May of this year. So we may not see the full impact of that, for example, until 
next year's survey results, but there have been a lot of changes this year. So it's interesting to see more steady results of that. And on the telework piece, Tom, I mean, what one thing I have to say is a bit annoying is OPM keeps changing the way they ask the questions about telework so that it's very difficult to track year to year. To be fair, they have not been doing telework questions on FEBS for very long, but they asked it differently this year than last year. So it's a little hard to tell what's going on there, partly for the reasons Drew just talked about. A lot of these return to work actions happened late in fiscal year 2023, so it's hard to know if the survey really captured a lot of that. But from the data that we can see, it really does not look like there's been a huge decrease in telework, at least at the time that the survey was collected. There's only 6% of the workforce that said they were not approved to telework in 2022. That figure stayed exactly the same in 2023. And OPM asked a new question on this year's survey, which was, do you telework every day? And 14% still said yes. So if you just look at those numbers, it looks like there may even be an increase in telework in 2023 compared to 2022. But is it fair to say that OPM is not trying to juice it by revising the questions? I mean, that would not be give you comparable year to year and would give them kind of a propaganda point, which this is not about that. Yeah, Drew may have some thoughts on this, but but I, I, I would say OPM, from what we have heard from leadership, is fairly supportive of telework with some caveats. And maybe we'll let uh, Kieran Ahuja, the director of OPM, explain her views herself. This is Ahuja speaking last week at the ELC conference in Hershey, Pennsylvania. What we're seeing and what we're understanding is that the hybrid work environment is, I think, the place of the future. Like, we're not going to go back to a pre-pandemic environment. That is about recruitment and how that's key to your recruitment, especially in the IT workforce. So we get it. I think we've increased the number of remote positions in the federal government. If you go on USA Jobs, there's a lot more. But I think we also need to understand the value of in-person engagement. And I think that is part of creating the balance that we need. And Tom, I'm speculating a little bit here, but it's possible that that 14% who say they are teleworking every day, that may come from that increase in purely remote positions. I don't think we know for sure yet. And one of the most important scores, Drew, is what people think of leadership, and that's holding pretty steady, which is kind of interesting given the teleworking phenomenon because people simply aren't in contact in person, visually, you know, and within actual earshot of their bosses in many cases. Absolutely. You know, this is one that is pretty interesting to track, Tom, just because looking, for example, last year in 2022 FEBS, you saw a really steep difference between employees' perceptions of top leaders versus their immediate supervisors. This is always a trend that we see where the immediate supervisors are generally regarded to have, you know, more positive perceptions from their employees. But in 2022, just last year, you saw a much steeper uh, gap than usual. This has closed a little bit this year. The perception of supervisors, for example, stayed exactly at 80%, pretty positive. But for these top leaders, there was a 2% increase. So they went from 59 up to 61%. So that's an interesting trend to watch over time. But it is it does stay pretty much on that path every year. And by the way, with respect to telework, what were the response rates like this year? Response rates were up quite a bit this year, interestingly, and and it's hard to know if that correlates exactly with the increase in scores across the board that we saw. But in 2023, there were 39% of the people who were eligible actually responded. That's 626,000 feds, so a really massive data set in these hundred or so questions. There was a 35% response rate last year 
Um, so, so pretty big difference from 35 to 39 percent. I guess then we could summarize almost by saying that with the telework continuing, it really doesn't seem to have that much effect on people's ability to work and how they feel about their work. In some sense, underscoring the trend toward people not coming into the office en masse every day of the week. I would say that's something that we might not be seeing the full picture just quite yet. Uh, As I mentioned, those results are, or the the survey was distributed in May. So largely before we saw a lot of agencies even announcing their return to office plans, that's something that came much later in the summer and into the fall. Now we're seeing those plans being carried out. A lot of employees now having to return to the office more often than they have been used to for the last couple of years. So it'll be most likely in next year's FEBS that we'll see the full results or full impacts of those changes that you know, employees have said for the past couple of years, they enjoy generally teleworking, they feel more productive. So I think it'll be interesting to see over time. And at this point, we don't know the agency by agency results. We don't know whether the Marine Mammal Commission is the most satisfied agency of the small ones or whatever. When does that all come out? So there's not an exact timeline, but generally we'll see that a couple weeks out from the raw data that OPM releases for FEVs. So maybe around early December, if I had to guess. And then in the couple months after that, we'll also see the Partnership for Public Services, Best Places to Work rankings, which is based off a couple different uh, data points in FEVs as well. So that'll tell a little bit more of the agency-specific story for 2023. OPM made a point in its kind of executive summary of comparing these results to the Gallup survey that that looks at the general working world in the private sector. Yeah, that's right. And, and that gets kind of back to the point that we started with, which is even though the increases are small, the trajectory and the sort of across the board nature of these increases, I think, is is what's worth looking at. And that's in contrast, as OPM points out, to what we see in private sector survey data on employee engagement, which is, you know, Gallup is kind of the authoritative source there. But questions are different. The indices are different. So you can't do one-to-one comparisons. But the, the overall private sector employment employee uh, engagement index has been dropping uh, for several consecutive years now by small increments, but dropping. Well, we'll wait for those agency by agency results to come out. In the meantime, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. And check out all of our FEVs coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.